thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Running. Absolute genius. Get this. Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> this is the show where we bring you science. What that essentially means is discovery is questions, research, technology. Unbelievable. Without further ado, this is the Naked Scientists. Hello, welcome to this week's Naked Scientists, the podcast that brings you the latest breakthroughs in science, technology, and medicine. I'm Chris Smith. This latest edition of the programme is sponsored by Eon Next, the energy provider on a mission to tackle eco-anxiety by encouraging people to power up for change. Eco-anxiety is a chronic fear of environmental doom. That sense of frustration and hopelessness we experience when it feels like we're going to be totally unable to stop climate change. The phenomenon has been rising rapidly in recent years, especially among younger generations who feel they're most likely to bear the brunt of a changing climate in the years ahead. But there's also evidence that eco-anxiety can unfortunately translate into lower levels of collective action because it can cause so much stress that some find themselves feeling paralysed and unable to act, which can be especially dangerous if it leads to us feeling there's nothing we can do, which of course isn't the case. For example, Eon Next's own Exploring Eco-Anxiety in Gen Z report highlights the fact that, on average, about 20% of our CO2 outputs come from energy we use at home. So looking at our homes is often a great place to start when we're thinking about how to do our bit and we'll have some tips to help you get started later on. But back to the subject of eco-anxiety. Patrick Kennedy-Williams is a clinical psychologist with a specific interest in climate change-related mental health and well-being. He's currently involved in supporting research into the psychological aspects of climate change, and he founded Climate Psychologists, an organisation that turns climate anxiety into climate action in schools and businesses. He's also co-host of the podcast Living on a Changing Planet, where he speaks with renowned figures in the climate space about how they manage the emotional demands of their work. Patrick's advice is all his own. It's not from me on Next directly, but they have been kind enough to put us in touch. We'll hear from him in just a second. Before that, though, if you meanwhile take a peek in your podcasting feed, you'll find a meditation or breathwork tutorial soundscape. Eon Next have created a brand new podcast feed that's made up of audio tools that you can use next time you feel the eco-anxiety mounting, and we're giving you one today alongside this bonus episode. There are a range of meditations, breathwork tutorials, soundscapes, all designed for you to use if ever you feel you need to step back and calm any mounting anxiety. For more of those resources, you just have to search out Power Up for Change in your podcasting app. So what's Patrick's take on eco-anxiety? The history of the term eco-anxiety is probably much shorter than the history of our experience of eco-anxiety itself. So we sort of had to scrabble to find a name to describe this set of emotions we experience in in response to climate change. And eco-anxiety or climate anxiety really started to emerge 
I would say around 2018, 2019, if you took, say, for example, the, the word of the year, the Oxford English Dictionary word of the year in 2019 was climate emergency. That was the phrase that captured the zeitgeist that year. And if you look at the kind of short list of phrases that year, there were words like eco-anxiety, eco-grief, flight shaming, all these kind of ideas. So what basically happened was the climate crisis entered into our public kind of collective understanding in a, in a really significant way, which of course is great because it shifted the conversation along. Almost as a byproduct of that, we saw this huge increase around the world in distress in response to what was going on. And this has been called eco-anxiety or climate anxiety. Amongst whom is it most manifest? Well, there have been a few myths around this question. It's been at times accused, if you like, of being a problem for the privileged in Northern Europe and uh, North America, for example, where we have the liberty, <laughs> the luxury of being able to be concerned about the climate crisis because we don't have, let's say, more pressing concerns on our, on our doorstep. It's also been accused of being a problem that rests solely with young people or solely with, with women. Actually, we've pretty much now dispelled most of those myths. It does have a tendency to be more prominent or more of, an, more of a problem for young people, certainly. The question of whether it's, a, if you like, a problem for the privileged, almost the opposite we've discovered to be true. One study in particular looked at 10,000 young people aged 16 to 25 from around the world and found that actually levels of climate distress or eco-anxiety were much higher in countries where there were greater climate impacts, right? So the Philippines, uh, Nigeria, India, for example. And so actually, one of the things we know now is that, if you like, the closer you are to the realities of climate change, the more likely you might experience eco-anxiety. It does seem to be, though, that young people are still a group that are particularly concerned about supporting the needs of young people again around the world because they are reporting the greatest level of distress and you can understand why they're inheriting they have more to lose if you like in terms of what the future has in store also young people are i think grown up and quite rapidly discovered that their adult counterparts haven't responded quickly enough essentially um so there's a lot of not just anxiety in young people but anger as well yeah and that was the word i was going to use was was anger are these just anger issues or are they actually crossing the divide and becoming health problems for the affected people? I'd say I've never met a young person with anger issues. Um, <laughs> just well, just well, anger well, that comes out in various different y- ways. Young people tend to be quite forthright in what they believe and what Absolutely. they say. And probably they're willing to give you the unvarnished account. It's quite refreshing. You get from the horse's mouth the real deal. And so generally they tend to be quite outspoken. They tend to be being very outspoken about the issue of the climate emergency, but is that yeah. translating into a clinical problem for these people or, or are they just angry about it? There's a wonderful circularity. So, you know, over the course of my journey into, into the climate, climate world, I've spoken with a lot of people, not just young people, but say climate scientists who are coming to the end of their careers, you know, and I'm asking them questions like how, you know, what is it that, you know, you've been banging this, this drum and, and talking about the evidence of climate change. It really hasn't, you know, the predictions haven't changed much at all over the past, you know, 80 or so years. What is it that, that gets you out the door? What is it that keeps you motivated? And, and these senior climate scientists will all kind of say, well, it's the young people, it's the energy that the young people and the climate movement, Fridays for Future, etc., have, have brought to the argument, have brought to the debate that gives these climate scientists kind of hope for the future. So 
there is a there's a, a huge amount of power, uh, power to be harnessed here. I think it's fair to say climate anxiety, like all forms of psychological experience that we have, exist on a continuum. At its lower levels, it's something that we sort of carry with us, you know, it might be triggered by doom-laden news story that we see or something that pops up on our social media channels. Uh, but it can extend into really quite a significant problem for people. We say a little bit of climate anxiety is a good thing. It can help motivate people towards it. It is in, in lots of cases a, a predictor, actually, of pro-environmental behaviour. So there is a positive role to play for climate anxiety. But in other circumstances, it can trigger this kind of eco-paralysis. And that's oftentimes when people might come through the doors of the therapy office saying, this really matters to me, but I'm, I feel completely disempowered. Um, it's keeping me awake at night. I'm experiencing debilitating anxiety. It's affecting, for example, my decision about whether to have kids or not. Huge existential crisis for somebody to be going through. And so for those people, it absolutely can be debilitating. I, mean, I think it's important to make the point as well that when we're talking about climate anxiety, we're not talking in the land of psychiatric disorder. Royal College of Psychiatrists in the UK have been very clear, as have all of the sort of associations of psychologists around the world in saying this is not a, a psychiatric pathology. This is a normal response to the existential crisis that we're facing. But absolutely, for some people, it can it can spill over and be unmanageable. And that's where, if you like, a lot of psychologists like me around the world are trying to do what we can to understand and, and support people with this problem. I, too, uh, have been looking at some of the reports and, and I was pretty gobsmacked to see quite a lot of people saying, I won't be having kids. And the reason I won't yeah. be having kids is because, and I thought they'd say, because I'm worried about their carbon footprint. But in fact, if you talk to these people, the reason they volunteer is because they're more concerned for the welfare of that child they haven't had in a climate changing future than their contribution to climate change through their existence, which is the way I would have approached it. Yeah, absolutely. In terms of the, the, the carbon footprint of their child, you know, I've heard people who have come to me with this problem. And this really is, by the way, one of the things we're really grappling with now is how to help somebody who's experiencing that kind of dilemma. You know, this again, I mentioned this 10,000 young people study around the world. One of the most frightening statistics from that was that, you know, up to 40% of young people are saying the climate crisis is, is likely going to be affecting their decision about whether to have kids in the future or not. And absolutely, people are coming through the door of, of the therapy office saying this, you know, with, with this particular dilemma, I do not know what to do about whether to have kids or not. I mean, there are other dilemmas as well in the context of the climate crisis. People are saying, I don't know what sort of job to get, you know, or where should I live in the world if I have that option of moving around the world? You know, where is it safest for me to be, you know? But this kid question is really distressing for people. And, you know, people have said, exactly as you've pointed out there, it's not necessarily about the carbon footprint, if you like, of that child they're bringing into the world. So people have said to me things like, you know, what's one more vegan? <laughs> you know, what's one more vegan in the world, you know, going to add? Um, it's much more around the uncertainty around the world that this, you know, young people now, chances are we living to the age of 100. You know, what's the world looking like in a, in 100 years time? And, you know, we just don't know. We don't know the answer to that. And we haven't really ever had to contemplate that before. So there's this huge kind of existential question for prospective parents i feel like it's a it's a universal human right isn't it about whether you have a child or not and if so how many children you want to have and i think anything that takes that right away from people whether it's their religion or their nationality or you know whether it's fears about the the future from a climate perspective or whether it's you know or about their sexuality or whatever it is 
um, that takes away from someone's fundamental human right to to decide about the about the the children they want to have is is a is a, a real problem. And absolutely, this is you know people are talking about this this climate question around child rearing is almost like a an issue around reproductive rights. What's the actual origin of this? Is it people digesting things on Twitter? Is it what they're being taught in schools? Is this something that people get from friends and peers and that winds them up? Do you know sort of how the information propagates and and how it tends to ferment among these groups? Yeah, it's a it's a really good question this. Again, you know, going back to this kind of watershed year of 2019, it's unarguable that the climate crisis is now in our everyday conversation, which of course is great because this is absolutely where it needs to be in terms of driving the political agenda, changing corporate behaviour. You know, the most impactful things we can do as individuals is is continue to keep this front and centre. As for how this originates for people, you know, as a result of this proliferation of climate information, we are absorbing so much more. When they've looked at studies of young people, you know, asking them, actually, where do you get your climate information the majority will say uh, in school, but also on social media, through conversations with friends, through this almost form of osmosis of, of it just being uh, exposed in quite subtle ways to the cl- to the climate conversation. Here we're just talking about those people who haven't been directly affected by climate and weather events yet. Obviously, you look at a community where they have experienced extreme weather. You know, take uh, France in 2022 as a classic example of this. Rates of climate anxiety went through the roof around France. 2022 was seen as the year that ended French apathy towards climate change. What really drove that? There were droughts, heat waves, and terrible wildfires in the southwest of the country. And so there's this sort of dual process by which we, we learn about climate change. But at the same time, we are now experiencing the effects of climate change more and more around the world. And so I think that there is this dual process that, that accounts for how people are exposed to this information. We um, published a study in the UK last year that was looking at what sorts of things might predict uh, a person's climate anxiety. One of the strongest predictors we found was climate information seeking behaviour. Well, what does that mean? Basically, that the more we read into, the more we learn about climate change, the more likely we are to experience climate anxiety, which presents us with a real dilemma because it's sort of like, do we then just put our heads in the sand <laughs> you know, and pretend that it's not happening? Uh, we obviously can't do that. So we need to find a way of being able to communicate climate in a way that is uh, ultimately empowering for people so that they feel a sense of agency and, and, and self-efficacy, which both of those things are absolutely a buffer uh, against climate anxiety. Are the people who are anxious about it doing anything about it? Are people just wringing their hands, rolling their eyes and saying, well, this is a terrible thing and someone needs to change something? Politicians need to wake up, but they don't actually come up with active things to do, suggestions or actually actions on their own back. Or are the same people who are being very vocal and very worried, are they actually taking steps to change things? I think they definitely are and we're seeing this pattern around the world um i mean i don't just mean chucking tins of paint over pictures at the tate i mean (laughs) as in you know positive affirmative action that that is practical and isn't just a nod and and the climate equivalent of virtue signaling kind of i've i've done one thing that's a good thing towards my carbon footprint (laughs) and nothing else you know is there evidence there is genuine meaningful action on the part of the people who are the worried ones yeah there is and and 
you're right to kind of um, call that quite narrow idea that we have of what climate action looks like. Absolutely. I mean, people, you know, speak to groups of young, well, I say young climate activists, but climate activists actually of all ages. And when I say climate activists, I mean, people engage in all kinds of different climate action. And yeah, absolutely. People are taking meaningful action, whether it's organising local climate events or raising awareness in their schools, universities, in their businesses. You know, we, I spend a lot of my time working with businesses. And I, let me tell you, business leaders are, are really paying attention to this problem. Do you think that's because they and, care, Patrick? Or do you think that's because they think the people who are going to buy their product cares and therefore it is well, the climate equivalent of virtue signalling? Because we have seen I, I, companies get this very royally wrong recently, haven't we? And it really backfires on them when it does because it, it calls them out showing actually they're, they're, just, they're just telling us this because they think they want to look good in our eyes. The optimist in me will say business leaders who are many of them parents themselves um, and parents of young people and those young people will probably be telling them that they need to be doing what they can to help mitigate the the effects of of climate crisis. The optimist in me will say that they do care. The cynic in me will say there are two competing forces here for business leaders, I think. On the one hand, yes, you're absolutely right. If they're public-facing, they know that they need to have a brand message that absolutely has some sort of authentic climate pledge but also we have the gen z emerging workforce now who are saying quite clearly actually it really matters what the climate and environmental position of my prospective company is and gen z workers are leaving in droves organizations that don't have an an authentic climate mission and strongly favoring those that do and that climate mission also includes their own well-being in the climate context as well so I think business leaders are under multiple forces. Actually, they're now realising we have to pay attention to this, not just in terms of uh, the messages that we give to our customers, but the messages we give to to new entrants into our workforce as well. Is there a right way to express your eco and climate anxiety? Because if you sort of cast your mind back to the last 12 months, we've seen transport on Britain's roads paralysed on many occasions by people of all ages of one particular organisation strolling slowly down the road with banners blocking all the traffic. It's hard to argue that they're getting the general public on side when they're stopping people getting to work, earning a living or getting to hospital, for example. So they're making their point. Yes, they, they, they had a triumph of publicity, but it, it, I wouldn't argue among the general public mindset it's good publicity. This has been a really divisive issue, hasn't it? There have been incidences where some form of direct climate action have had really unintended consequences for, for people, you know, being able to visit family members who are ill or being able to attend funerals or, you know, these sorts of things. And my job is not to say what form of climate action or awareness raising is is good or bad, but rather to sort of support the people who are climate concerned and like I said we do have this kind of slightly narrow focus I think about what climate action can look like and you know for the most part most of the people that certainly uh, I, I engage with in the in the climate space and outside the climate space as well people who, who are just genuinely concerned and genuinely wanting to do what they can in their own lives and there's a whole range of ways that people have become involved in this you know whether it's voting with their wallet or voting in the booth or doing bits of local awareness raising or writing a letter to their elected representatives or making changes 
at home. So what can people do or what sorts of practical steps are people taking, both here but all around the world, in order to ease their own anxieties but also do something meaningful? We've known for a long time that one of the best sort of remedies, if we like, for climate anxiety is take some form of action, which is true, I think it's fair to say, of of lots of forms of anxiety. We feel like we're able to contribute meaningfully to a problem. It, It can allay that sense of hopelessness and helplessness. One of the really interesting studies that came out this past year was looking at, well, okay, which is more helpful? Is it more helpful to take individual action at home or is it more helpful to take collective action bringing multiple people together around an issue and quite clearly what we can say is actually it's collective action that seems to be not only the most beneficial actually um, from a climate change perspective right to amplify our individual actions at a group level but also it seems to act as a much better buffer against climate change related distress as well so The forms of action that we're all taking, of course, can involve all kinds of things in terms of changes to our lifestyles, changes to our diets, flying less, all the things that we know are beneficial from an individual perspective. As well as those, it's those times that we can connect in a wider sense at a group level, at a community level around an issue that we're particularly passionate about. And it doesn't need to be marching in the streets, although for lots of people, marching in the streets is is absolutely a form of climate action. But for loads of other people, it's about just using the skills they already have. You know, we do these kind of workshops with people all the time where we say, okay, we have to overcome the myth of climate perfectionism. Firstly, it's not about a few people doing this perfectly. It's about all of us doing what we can and that there's going to be setbacks and we're going to do it imperfectly. And it's going to be a bit clumsy and we might launch into some sort of climate action that doesn't work very well. All of that stuff is fine. What are you passionate about? And what skill set do you already have? Are you a communicator? Are you good at balancing the books? Are you good at design or art? You know, all of these sorts of things have a role. And it's when we help people to gear their climate action towards the things that they're interested in and the things they're good at and the things that are meaningful for them. That's when we see the most impactful responses from people and actually the greatest level of kind of adaptive psychological well-being as a result of it. But much of this has been talk, a lot of hot air, if you will. And and I can't remember who it was who famously said at the end of the day, when everything's said and done, a lot more was said than done. A lot of the conversations around climate change are talk. There's not much action. Mm -hmm. Well, again, it depends on what your view of action is, you know. So there are people who are taking action in... The courts, for example, the Supreme Court in the US, there's been a class action lawsuit building for a long time. There's another one in Europe as well, where young people are um, are, uh, bringing class action lawsuits around governmental decisions that have been impactful in terms of their, in terms of protecting the future, um, you know, reducing fossil fuels, uh, etc. There are Again, actions happening. It's difficult because I guess it's the luxury of my job, I suppose, that I work with lots of people um, who are taking action. So I see this all the time. You know, I might work with in an organisation who um, whose job it is to communicate climate change, right? And they've just put out a, a policy of information or awareness raising. Or I might work with another company around um, reducing their reducing that you know help supporting them towards net zero, making infrastructural changes. Um, or I might work with groups of people. 
um, who have brought around a, a, ch- a change in local policy or who are involved in rewilding or you know there are all kinds of um, all ki- it, it, all kinds of sort of quite practical uh, changes that are happening of course there could be more to be done to be done and there's more action that we can all be taking um, but I think I think part of the problem is we look outside the window and we don't see evidence of, of of actions being taken in fact but one of the one of the the roles i spend most of my time adopting um talking with people or working with organizations is about having them recognize the steps that they're taking because although they might be making actually quite massive changes that have a direct carbon benefit um they open a newspaper the next day and um the climate crisis still rolls on uh, and so there can be this absolutely this kind of dejection informa- uh, dejection problem where it does sound like and feel like, as you say, it's just hot air. And what, um, you know, what sort of, uh, um, what action's actually being taken in a, in, a, in a sort of concrete way, you know. And there's a lovely quote, there's a young climate activist in the UK called Bella Lack who wrote a great uh, book last year called Children of the Anthropocene. And she says, in activism, there's no such thing as an action that simply fails. Just like an ecosystem, each species or each act has webs of causes and effect that ripple out, reverberating and shifting the stories of unwritten histories. I think the point there she's making is that we don't we don't necessarily know. We can't we can't necessarily see immediately the direct results of the climate actions that we're taking again at home or at work or within a school community, etc., um, or even the, the direct impact of just talking about climate change. You know, this this so-called hot air, actually this has brought the climate crisis, you know, front and centre into the kind of Overton window, right? The the window of acceptable public discourse. So even talking about it, right, even hot air itself has has has, has become a, a, a really important tool and a really important climate action for people. You know, if you speak to climate, um, climate scientists, they'll say, one of the most important things that we can do as individuals is to talk about what's going on. Let's finish by me giving you the probably the hardest job of the last half hour, which <laughs> is to you, you tell me where you think we're going to be in five years' time and ten years' time. This is the classic interview question when you're going for a job, isn't it? Where do you see yourself in five years' time? Where do you think we, as a climate change-aware population, will be in five years? and 10 years hence my expectation is it hope or an expectation psychologists we're we're kind of we're we're hope mongers we have an excess of hope we have hope to spare we can't help it i i can't help but think that in five years time climate change will become much bigger from an education perspective the climate crisis as a human and natural issue will permeate all the different subjects, particularly at secondary school age. The green economy will continue to expand. My hope is there won't be any more this idea of a sustainability sector, but rather that the core ideas of sustainability and the sustainable development goals that have been created over these past few years will be kind of embedded much more readily across different industries and across different sectors. I don't think we'll be calling it climate anxiety in five to ten years' time. I think we'll have come up with a, a new way of conceptualising our emotional response to climate change that includes all the other emotions that we can experience. That's certainly 
my focus. That's where I want to see uh, the climate conversation uh, in, in five to 10 years time. And also my hope is that we will have returned to some of the indigenous wisdom our relationship with the natural world has become so detached for those of us in the in the sort of techno-driven Anthropocene. And my hope is that we'll return to some of these kind of core principles. And that if you like, a lot of the more technological solutions that exist are becoming cheaper, more accessible, uh, more proliferated. That's where I'd like to see us in, in 10 years time. Patrick Kennedy-Williams. And if that conversation has resonated with you and you'd like to reduce the carbon footprint of your home, remember, of course, that about 20% of our carbon emissions come from home energy, meaning it's a really important place to start. Here are some energy-saving top tips for your house. Number one, look at your home heating system. This is where the lion's share of our energy use goes. So can you turn the thermostat down a degree or two and add a layer of clothing instead to compensate? Also, consider an upgrade to smart systems that can be much better at matching heating to when and where it's needed. Number two, insulate. As well as the extra layer for you, add draft excluders, lagging for hot water pipes and extra insulation on the walls and loft space. It'll reduce the rate at which heat is lost from your home and if you waste less, you will cut your carbon footprint. Number three, look at your lighting. Modern LED lamps use a fraction of the energy of older star bulbs and because they also last a lot longer, you're not adding to your carbon footprint driving relentlessly to the shops to replace them every few weeks. And number four, don't leave your devices on standby when you're not using them. And if your appliances have an eco or economy mode, use that whenever you can. Thanks very much to Patrick Kennedy-Williams for joining us this week and thanks to E.ON Next for partnering with us. Remember, you can find a whole range of audio tools that will help you rest and renew by searching Power Up for Change on your podcasting app and do please take a listen to the meditation, breathwork and soundscape that's in your feed right now for a taster. And now, if you're all powered up and ready to tackle eco-anxiety, we're imagining you might feel like taking some action, do search up hashtag Power Up for Change or you can visit eonnext.com slash eco hyphen anxiety for more information. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.